welcome back to the TLDR News Podcast. I'm Jack Kelly and I'm joined by Zach Michaelis. Hello. And Rory Taylor. Hello. In today's episode of the podcast, we're going to be running through the underreported stories of the week. We're also going to be discussing the situation in Venezuela, uh, the vote that recently happened to annex Guyana and the implications of that since it's happened. Um, and then finally, we're going to be running through the World Leader Leaderboard to discuss our winners and losers in politics this week. If you're unfamiliar with the podcast and if you're surprised by what's happening here, this is a series we've been doing for a while now over on the TLDR podcast channel, and we're now migrating it over to the TLDR UK and global channels. So every Thursday, there'll be an episode of it right here on TLDR Global, and there'll be a UK-focused episode on TLDR UK every Tuesday. Nice. As I say, we're talking about Venezuela as our main story today, um, but before we get there, we wanted to highlight some underreported stories from around the world that we think deserve some attention. And let's start with your underreported story, Zach. So uh, over on the UK channel, uh, I did my underreported story a couple of days ago on COP mm -hmm. and um, the, the change in language. And obviously, that has dominated the headlines. Um, hasn't really been underreported in that sense, but it's dominated the headlines that the the final communique from COP28 yeah. has basically ditched all language about phasing out fossil fuels entirely and is instead talking about sort of like reducing production and reducing consumption. Yeah. But I think I thought I'd balance out the pessimism this week by talking about one of, I think, the more positive developments from COP. And that is, it happens sort of on the sidelines, but a couple of days ago, US Climate Secretary John Kerry announced a 22-country sort of pledge or resolution um, to triple global nuclear energy production um, okay. by 2050, which would imply... You know, depending on how you think energy demand is going to change over the years, that implies that basically it should account for about a third um, of total electricity generation. And anyone who, like, I don't know, is a fan of TLDR will know that I am a, a big advocate for nuclear energy. Yeah. And I think that it is going to have to play, well, I think the most likely case is that it's going to have to play quite an important role in the energy transition because it's one of the sort of few zero carbon but reliable sources of energy. So stuff like solar and wind obviously depend on whether or not the sun is shining or the wind is blowing. Mm -hmm. And without a very expensive and comprehensive battery network, you need a sort of baseload power source um, to keep the lights on at all times. And I think nuclear fits the bill, um, especially for those countries that don't have access to like hydropower, for example. Um, and so I think it's a good scene. I think it's part of the sort of like wider trend of rehabilitation of nuclear power that we've seen over the past like couple of years or so. I think as the, the demands of the climate transition have become apparent, people's anxieties about nuclear power have sort of been overwhelmed by its energy related benefits. Has there been any pushback to this from the kind of anti-nuclear people or has it not received enough attention yet to have garnered that kind of response? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think like all of, like any sort of like pro-nuclear statement, there have been some yeah. people who push back against it. Um, obviously, it's only 22 member states. I can't remember exactly who they are, but, for, you know, it doesn't include okay. like well-known anti-nuclear countries like Germany, Germany. for example. Yeah. The Germans probably are not going to turn their nuclear power plants back on. Um, but I think that there is a you know save leave aside there's a couple of exceptions places like germany mm -hmm. um but that that's for very specific reasons that germany is so staunchly anti-nuclear but in general so like in the aggregate the world has been getting a bit more pro-nuclear and mm -hmm. i think that that's good and i think that the it just makes the climate transition more feasible so that's my that's my unreported story and i think it's good news nice yeah Rory, what's your unreported story? Um, I'm sticking true to form with my stories. I'm okay. going for another one from Central America. Yeah, uh, I actually tweeted about this story the other day, and someone replied. At uh, Rory. Yeah, thank you. And someone <laughs> replied um, correctly, guessing this would be my underreported story. So uh, <laughs> shout out to 
uh, Alexa, I think their name was. So Whoa, thank you for that. Whoa, noted it down. Um, yeah, so uh, this is kind of an ongoing story that I think mm. hasn't got enough coverage at all. Um, it's a, effectively an ongoing attempted coup in Guatemala. Mm-hmm. Um, they had an election back in the summer. The second round was in August, and it was won by this guy called Bernardo Arevalo. Uh, he, he's an anti-corruption campaigner, um, broadly centre-left, uh, also the son of the country's first democratically elected president. Um, he won with like 61% of the vote, pretty convincing. Mm-hmm. But since then, there's been this concerted effort to like stop him from taking power um, by the attorney, the attorney general's office, effectively. Um, they've tried to suspend his party. They've tried to annul, um, or nullify the results. They've mm. tried to lift his uh, immunity that he has as president-elect, all sorts of things. Um, Guatemala in the last few years has been going through like a bit of a democratic backslide um, and increasing corruption. And so, so his victory was kind of seen as this big victory for mm. the anti-corruption forces and seen as a chance to hopefully turn that around. But um, obviously those entrenched powers have tried to stop that happening or are still trying to stop that happening. Um, so the interesting thing is, though, it's the, the attorney general's office is leading this, this, this attempt, but not all the parts of the state are on board with it. You've got the electoral tribunal, which is a kind of overall electoral body, says they say they're not going to nullify the results. Um, Aravalo's vowed to take power in January, um, so it's definitely not a done deal. And uh, basically everyone in the region has condemned this. Um, you've got the Organization of American States, the US, the EU. Uh, everyone involved has effectively come down hard and said, this isn't right. Um, the US has started to apply sanctions to individuals involved. Um, so it looks like it, it looks like he will take power, but you know, not, not without a fight. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the interesting thing with this is that they had an election in ending in August. He doesn't pe- take power until mid-January. Like, that's such a long transition period. Yeah. And it's just like asking for something to happen. You know, if they did it two <laughs> days after, then it probably would have been easier. But, um, yes, that's that's the story I think should be getting a bit more attention now. Sounds like the slowest coup of all yeah, time. You know, when you think of military really coup, is. you think of, like, seizing Absolutely, the national yeah. mili- TV station. Because it's all being done through, like, legal, legal means, you know, yeah. or, or, like, trying to make it look like legal means. Um, but, yeah, so... I think it's one to keep watching over the next month or so. When do you think we'll have a conclusion to it, or would it continue basically be until he actually actually takes power? And even then, um, the the impact whether if they do manage to suspend his party properly, that might impact how how he's able to govern. But presumably, when he takes power, he can sack the attorney general and you know put someone new in. But yeah, we'll see. Interesting. Well, we're going to stick with the Americas for our main story. Mm-hmm. But before we get there, I just wanted to quickly shout out our newspaper, Too Long, which we promoted a handful of times in videos. I'm sure you've heard us talk about it. But it's our 32-page physical newspaper, which we've been writing. All the TLDR team have been contributing. We've got a bunch of other external contributors. Some of our favorite creators have written for the newspaper. We're really happy with it. We hope that you want a copy. And if you do, then you can get 30% off your order by using the code TLDRPODCAST. Um, through to the end of the week. This is also probably your last opportunity to get a copy before Christmas if you live in the UK. So if you have a TLDR fan in your life who would want a physical, silly, fun, interesting newspaper, now's the time. The link is in the description. Okay, so as I say, we're sticking with the Americas. We're shifting downwards a bit to... Um, downwards, it's a very <laughs> South would be more normal. We're shifting south to um, Venezuela and Guyana, which is a story we've covered a few times on the channel. We've done a couple of main videos yeah. on TLDR Global about it. But for the benefit of people who haven't necessarily watched those videos, do you want to run through quickly a recap of what's happened and kind of the background? Yeah, yeah. I can yeah. give it a go. So 
Uh, without going into too much detail, it's been a very long, long-running border dispute between Venezuela and Guyana um, since like the 1800s, back when Guyana was a British um, colony. Um, it's been ongoing that whole time, but the big thing that changed recently, or in the last decade or so, was in 2015, uh, Guyana made a massive discovery of oil off mm -hmm. their coast. Um, and uh, yes, they've had this massive economic boom because of it. They've been doing very well out of it. Um, one of the fastest growing countries in the yes. world, we said in one of Which the videos, I think, didn't we? Yeah, no, I think we, yeah the fastest. The fastest we did. Well, according to IMF data, from yeah. basically over the pandemic, okay. Guyana's GDP essentially like triples. Wow. Um, yeah. And every other country, well, the vast majority of countries obviously shrink during yeah. the pandemic. So it's a really odd outlier on the graph. Yeah. Um, so... Un uh, unsurprisingly, <laughs> that attracted their neighbours' attention. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, so they kind of reignited this, this territorial dispute, or Venezuela reignited this territorial dispute. And the thing that happened in the last... Uh, last few weeks was that Venezuela held a referendum uh, asking its own citizens if it rejected a previous ruling about that territory belonging to Guyana. If they rejected that, rejected the ICJ's jurisdiction mm -hmm. and asked if they wanted to incorporate this region called Essequibo as a part of Venezuela, um, effectively annexing that territory. Mm -hmm. Um, and for reference, Essequibo is like makes up two thirds of Guyana, so it's not like little pocket. It's it's the vast, vast majority. majority of the yeah. territory. Um, so so Guyana sees it as like a, an existential threat to its existence. Understandably, um, Venezuelans, according to the official results, voted overwhelmingly, or those who did vote voted mm -hmm. overwhelmingly in favour of these proposals, um, and that has kind of sparked a lot of fear about you know will Venezuela invade? What are they going to do now? They've got this this what what they would say is a mandate. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's that's kind of takes us to where we are now. You say of those who voted, was the turnout notably high or low? Or it's so we. I don't, as far as I'm aware, we don't have an actual percentage okay. number for the turnout. There was this whole thing after the vote where I think the authority said we had. I think they said ten million. Yeah, votes. they said ten million votes, and there mm. was this dispute about whether that was 10 million people voting the referendum or if it was across the five questions okay. there <laughs> were 10 million, million votes yeah and i don't actually know if they if they have, if we ever got to the bottom of that um but uh yeah the fact that we they didn't say you know 90 percent of venezuelans voted and voted okay. for this suggests that maybe it wasn't as many as as they hoped yeah sure. and then it's hard to obviously get like verifiable information but the like reports available suggest that turnout was pretty low Okay. Um, because you can compare like what it looks like at a polling station compared to like previous elections, mm -hmm. um, and basically the polling stations are pretty much empty. So, sure. Yeah. So some Venezuelans voted to maybe annex a part of Guyana. Yeah. Yeah. Why is it that they voted that way? Is it is oil the only answer? Is it a case of they saw the economic success of their neighbour and thought we want that too? Why is it that they want this territory? I think. Well. I was going to say, I think there is there is just the fact that it's a long-running dispute and mm -hmm. that Venezuela genuinely does see that as their legitimate territory. They see the border as not being fairly demarcated. Um, so, you know, even before the oil, disco oil discovery, that was, that was the position of the country. Um, for reference, it was back in 1899, there was an international tribunal that, that set the, bound the current boundary. Um, but Venezuela kind of sees that as like a stitch-up by colonial powers because it was the U.S., Rep supposedly representing Venezuela, the UK and Russia supposedly as the neutral party that agreed to to kind of give that territory to British Guyana. Mm. Um, so Venezuela doesn't view that as legitimate. Um, but, you know, whether that was a stitch up or not, you know, it doesn't justify going and annexing two thirds, sure. of, two -thirds of your neighbouring country. Um, but uh, so, yeah, so I think... Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think, I think 
you do have that historic uh, context that would would mean people do view that as their territory. But obviously, the oil and Zach might want to talk more about this. The oil obviously is a big factor, yeah. the predominant factor, you might say. Yeah, I think it's weird. I so I think in our videos we focused on the oil, but. I think that there's reason to be skeptical that the oil actually plays, or at least if the oil does play a big role, I think it's just a, it's a weird mistake from Venezuela because for the simple reason that Venezuela already has tons of oil. Mm. Um, so I just think it's worth separating out two things. I think one, why did the electorate vote for it if they indeed did, if the polling can be trusted? And then why did the government, why is the government yeah. pushing for it? Sure. And I think the electorate voted for it for the, the reasons I've already described. It's, you know, just most Venezuelans do consider Essequibo to be a part of Venezuelan territory for just historical and national reasons. Um, but the reason that the government wants it, I think there are two plausible reasons. I mean, one is oil. Um, but the other, which I think is probably underestimated, is it's about Maduro sort of stoking nationalist sentiment before these potential elections that might be coming up sometime next year. He's obviously not very popular mm. and obviously the elections won't be fair, um, but he's, it's, it's a, you know, like in any country, like basically sort of creating a, a conflict, international conflict is a very yeah. good way of like rallying around the flag and getting voters on your side um, because it turns the election to a question of patriotism, you know, like, mm. do you support Venezuela? Do you support me, Maduro and my efforts to, like reclaim our national homeland. On the oil thing, yeah, the oil thing I think is, is complicated because I think that at face value, you think, of course, this is about oil. I mean, Guyana, as we mentioned, has discovered a ridiculous amount of oil off its sort of like, um, what's Eastern coast or sort of Northeastern coast. Um, and I think since 2015, something like a third of all oil discovered has been found in and around Guyana, which is amazing when you consider that Guyana has a population of like 500,000 people, mm. like it's absolutely mm. tiny. Um, and that obviously has done great things for the Guyana economy, although it's worth saying that obviously Venezuela is many, many times larger than Guyana. So it's not like the, 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 the economic numbers don't really match up in that sense. Mm -hmm. um, but the thing that's weird about it is that, as I mentioned a second ago, Venezuela has tons of oil and it's not like its economic problems are it doesn't have enough oil. Yeah. I mean, like Venezuela has, for context, the most proven oil reserves in the world, more than Saudi Arabia. Wow. It's not as easy to drill because lots of it's offshore and mm -hmm. it's quite thick oil, whereas Saudi Arabia is literally sort of sand wells and you can just dig it in, it just starts flowing. Um, but in terms of just pure proven oil reserves, Venezuela has the most oil in the world. Mm. But this hasn't been good for the Venezuelan economy. I mean, like the most economists agree that actually the ridiculous amount of oil that the Venezuelans have discovered has actually been bad for the Venezuelan economy mm. because it was sort of discovered in the 1920s and it was good for the first few years. But what happens when an economy discovers tons of oil is the whole economy just becomes too reliant mm. on that single commodity. This is a known in the economic literature as Dutch disease. Mm. And its name is coined after... The, the Netherlands, so the Dutch, discovered natural gas in the 70s, which they thought would be great for their economy because like you get new exports, it's very, very valuable, it's easy to export. Um, but what ends up happening is it becomes a problem for two reasons. I mean, the first is that it makes all your other exports less competitive because if you're selling loads of oil, there's demand for your currency. So your currency gets more expensive, which means your other exports are less competitive. So like, I think Venezuela at the moment, oil revenues account for something like half of all exports and something like two thirds of all government revenue. It might not be that big, but basically the problem is, is that the currency becomes too valuable and you can't export other stuff. Um, but it also makes you just deeply reliant on commodity cycles and dangerously so. So like, you know, when oil prices are high, you're having a great time. And just this is the way politics works. 
normally petro states like Venezuela don't do the prudent thing and save up all those revenues for when oil prices are going to be low. They just spend them to keep people happy. You mm. know, you get loads of money, you think, oh, let's just do, have some fun with it. And what, I mean, the, the most recent Venezuelan crisis really begins in 2014, which is when oil prices come crashing down. Um, from, I mean, they really, they dropped on like 75% in the space of 12 months. They go from about $120 per barrel to about $30 per barrel. And that's mainly because, by the way, the Saudis are trying to undercut American shale producers. It's a whole other story that we'll do another time. But the, that just cripples the Venezuelan economy mm. and state. And the state responds by printing lots of money, which in turn fuels hyperinflation. Um, and there was some brief respite during the pandemic. Inflation apparently came down, although it's, it's hard to know because Venezuela stopped publishing official data in 2015. But the reports suggest that inflation is back up now. The economic crisis is as bad as it's ever been. And yeah, my, my point here basically is that via Dutch disease, Venezuela's enormous oil reserves have probably in the long term and in the aggregate been bad for its economy. Mm. So the idea that Maduro is thinking, oh, what we need now is some more oil yeah. <laughs> is, is just, I don't think it really makes total sense. Um, and if, if that is what he's thinking, it's not particularly like economically literate. And obviously, since the votes happened, that's kind of the motivation from both sides. Since the votes happened, there was immediate conversation around what Venezuela would do next. Would they immediately annex Guyana? Would they like make moves? There was already like a buildup of troops on the border before the vote, right? Yeah, there was there was some troop movements. It's, again, yeah. this stuff is really hard to like uh, to verify properly. In part because obviously, like journalistic access inside Venezuela is pretty limited, mm. but also because. I think, as Roy sort of alluded to, Essequibo is not like a... It's, it's, it's rainforest. It's this massive, dense bit of rainforest. Yeah. So, like, troop movements, it's very hard yeah. to, like, map. Like, you're using sort of grainy satellite imagery and sort of very, very scattered reports of people trekking through jungles yeah. mm -hmm. and hearing something. Um, Regardless, yeah. though, there's not been any immediate obvious action. And, in fact, we discussed in the office earlier in the week the fact that it now looks like some kind of immediate action doesn't look all that likely. So why is that and what do we expect this vote to lead to, if anything? So I think there was a lot of speculation before the vote that uh, the, the Maduro regime was going to use the result effectively just to bolster their case mm -hmm. in front of the international community. Um, but yeah, like you said, since the, since the vote, there hasn't really been... If anything, it's slightly de-escalated. I mean, Maduro is going to meet the uh, Guyanese prime minister... Um, I think tomorrow or Thursday, I guess the day this comes out, um, for talks. I mean, the, the Guyanese, um, sorry, president, I think, mm. um, has said, like, I'm not going there to, to negotiate. I'm going there to tell him that this is ours and it's yeah, not yours. we're not having it. Um, but the fact that there is this dialogue suggests that there is, that, that, that you know, there might be a more peaceful resolution um, somewhere down the line. Um, there's been a lot of action by um, Lula from Brazil and also... Um, a guy called Ralph Gonsalves, who's the Prime Minister of St. Vincent and the Grenadines, which is kind of a nearby Caribbean nation. Um, he's been involved a lot uh, to try and make it a kind of, uh, you know, bring some kind of talking, talking mm. between the, the two heads of state. Um, so, yeah, things seem to have de-escalated slightly, but like fundamentally that dispute is still there and, you know, Maduro might change his mind on what he wants to do going forward. Um, but... Uh, the other thing to note is that the ICJ, the International Court of Justice, is considering the whole the whole case of whether the border is actually uh, in the right place mm. or not. Um, Venezuela has rejected the jurisdiction of the ICJ, but the ICJ says it has jurisdiction and it's still going to go ahead with it. Venezuela's semi-boycotting the proceedings, which suggests that you know the ruling will be in favour of Guyana. Um, but once that is done, you know that 
that's kind of the most concrete international legal thing you can get that says this is the border mm -hmm. and this is the way it's going to be. So maybe after that something will change, but you know, we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, I, I guess so. I, I think we're always basically right, but I, I basically don't think that there will be any sort of major escalation. And I think what's basically happened is that I, I imagine that Maduro didn't expect to get as much attention as it did. Mm. I don't really know why it's become such a big story. Maybe it's just a slow news week. But, <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a very, very small country, Guyana. You know, it's the sort of country maybe you could normally get away with annexing. Um, but this story has, has got a lot of international attention and a lot of attention from, you know, as we mentioned, um, Venezuela's South American neighbours, but also from the US who mm. have made some sounds about it. And I think what's basically happened is, is that Maduro's realised that while sort of like uh, bellicosity and like aggressive rhetoric might be quite good for him politically, he just can't really afford an invasion because it would incur some economic costs. Not actually the invasion itself, but it would almost definitely invite significant sanctions um, or an escalation of the sanctions that are already on Venezuela. And ordinary Venezuelans just, just cannot afford more sanctions. Like, it is really hard to overstate quite how acute the Venezuelan economic crisis currently is. I mean, it depends how you measure it. Again, the data is a bit unreliable. But according to like IMF estimates, Venezuela's GDP per capita in real terms is about half what it was in like 2010. And it's about what it was in 1980. You know, that is that is 45 years of no growth. I mean, that is astonishing. Mm. Um, and that's GDP per capita as well. So that's sort of inflated by like oil and oil exports, that sort of thing. You know, Venezuelan wages and, and poverty levels in Venezuela are terrible. Um, and I think that basically Maduro would have realized that actually he, he couldn't afford in that sense the, um, and the sort of international pushback that would result from an annexation of Guyana. And obviously last month we saw that the US was loosening sanctions on Venezuela. Do you think that this all has something to do with that or is this separate? Yeah, so I think just for a little recap there, what basically happened is, is last month or so, um, the Biden administration, which has been trying really hard to bring down global oil prices, not least by getting the US to produce loads of oil, loosened sanctions on Venezuela so mm. it could um, export a bit more oil. You know, Venezuelan oil exports are down to like 80% in the past decade. Um, and... The trade there, he was basically saying to Maduro, we'll loosen these sanctions if you make proper preparations for next year's election, like if you actually allow a, a free and fair election. Um, and in this respect, what's happened over the last, you know, in Guyana, it's just a bit of an embarrassment for the Biden regime because it's just that Maduro has gone, you know, he's, he's basically seen that actually the, the Biden administration is so desperate for lower oil prices that he can sort of get away mm -hmm. with breaking international norms and threatening neighboring states. Um, and I think there was all something about him. He's also backtracked on his end of the bargain by something about him and opposition politicians. Yeah, so um, following the referendum, there's been, a, I think it was like five opposition politicians close to the person who is the presumed opposition nominee for president next year. Um, they've been charged, uh, the, the, the people close to her, <coughs> have been charged with like undermining the referendum effectively um so he's kind of used that whether it was intentional or just like or saw a good opportunity to take it he's used it to to you know to suppress the opposition more than they already have been doing um yeah i think that's so, just yeah, yeah so I was just, that is, is just deeply embarrassing for the biden regime because you know you make a deal with maduro and you go like, okay come on we'll, we'll let you have some oil we need some oil so can mm. you do some democracy stuff and he just goes yeah i'll take my oil revenues and then you're not going to do mm. anything no, about that i'm not going to annex my yeah. neighbor yeah. and arrest a bunch of people yeah i think the whole the whole dispute couldn't be more designed to like infuriate 
the Venezuelan government because it's like it's not just them saying, "Oh, look, this neighboring country is taking our oil." It's Exxon Mobil, you know, U.S. oil company, mm-hmm. making huge profits on oil that they see as Venezuelan. You know, that goes completely against what Maduro, mm-hmm. you know, stands yeah. for and speaks against. So, like, it, it really goes to the core of that that kind of U.S. Uh, Venezuela dispute as well. Yeah. Yeah, it'd be interesting as Maduro comes closer to election campaign and stuff like that. We obviously spoke around um, this being political to some extent. It'll be interesting how the politics of it play out. Mm. And if he then wants to drum up more support, wants to do more in this area. But at least in his mind, he clearly has the mandate to do something. Whether he will or not, we'll wait and see. And yeah. Nice. Nice. (laughs) Cool. Let's move on. I would love to hear your list of countries you think you could annex without people noticing (laughs) but i don't think we have time unfortunately so let's move on to the world leader leaderboard okay so to end the show as we always do with the tldr podcast we're going to run through the world leader leaderboard now if this is your first time watching now that we've moved over the tldr global channel let me quickly explain how this works the world leader leaderboard is our ranking of how different politicians from around the world stack up against each other. And each week, we take the opportunity to move one person up on the board and one person down on the board. Those are our winners and losers of the week. Each guest gets the opportunity to move one person up and one person down. And then we see where they all land. <laughs> yeah. Looking at the board, the people at the very top are the people who are ranked as doing the best right now. And the people at the bottom are ranked as doing the worst. This obviously isn't some kind of political or uh, moral personal statement. or moral yeah. judgment. There's some people we don't like near the top or whatever. Um, but this is based week by week on who has won that week and thus who moves and where they move. Hopefully that makes sense. We'd love to hear your thoughts on who you would move up and down this week. So make sure you let us know in the comments. But I'm going to ask you two first. And let's start with you, Rory. Who is your winner of the week? My winner of the week. Um, I'm going to take this opportunity to shout out another person on Twitter. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, at Dylan Forey 2 who's doing his own <laughs> version of this board Whoa. alongside with us. Um, the reason I'm shouting him out is because uh, the person I'm moving up is also someone he moved up this week. Mm. We just have on the same wavelength yeah great not minds at all. not at all um i'm moving up uh narendra modi indian okay. prime minister you better not be moving down <laughs> his other one <laughs> um, Why is this so this is based on a supreme court ruling that happened earlier this week that effectively upheld a decision by modi's government that they made in 2019 to revoke the special status of where is it just that modi i'm going to keep speaking yeah. Next to, to, to revoke the special status of oh, yeah, uh, Jammu <laughs> and Kashmir. Uh, so previously that was, it had this kind of special semi-autonomous, uh, basically had more power than any other Indian state because of its kind of you know, historic status. But the Modi's government wanted to, to fully incorporate it as a federally administered territory um, or state in India. Uh, they did that in 2019. It went to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court has now agreed with that decision or okay. at least allowed it to go ahead. So, so he's, one on He's that, won that in argument. that sense yeah. yeah yeah absolutely zach who's your winner of the week well it's partly because i feel it's a bit peak having him all the way at the bottom but i think my winner of the week is going to be sunak oh wow for simple reason that ben wanted to move him down last episode but couldn't because he was at the bottom of the board already <laughs> well yeah he's gonna fight you next yeah. UK no podcast. no but i ben wanted, ben wanted to move him down because at the time when we recorded the last podcast it looked like he was about to suffer uh, a defeat in the commons 
over his sort of new Rwanda plan. Um, but I think to many people's surprise, he survived that vote quite, not comfortably, but by a relatively large margin. Yeah. Um, and I think that's, that is very good news for him because I think, you, I mean, we remember, all remember this in the sort of hours before the vote. There's quite a lot of chatter about pretty extreme stuff like a leadership election. We were chattering about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that the vote has really diffused all of that. And he, mm. he does look significantly safer in post than he did even like a couple of days ago. Yeah. Yeah. Seems yeah. reasonable. Move yeah. him up. Rory, conversely, who's your loser of the week? Um, my loser of the week is the Japanese Prime Minister, Fumio oh, Kishida. Okay. Um, this is someone, I think I have moved him down already, but he's been in a really bad place at the moment. Um, basically, his polling is tanking, but most recently there's been this huge financial scandal that's erupted in Japan um, surrounding his party, the LDP, uh, about effectively they're, they're accused of creating this slush fund of underreported um, political donations and like handing them out to lawmakers as, as kickbacks, you know. Sure. Um, very big news in Japan. His, his uh, approval polling is plummeting. It was already very low. Mm -hmm. The party's uh, voting intention polling is, is getting worse as well. And my prediction would be that he will resign at some point. Maybe he'll say he won't stand for re-election uh, for party leader in September. Mm. Um, but yeah, he's in a very bad situation. The other interesting thing is that Japan announced their word of the year oh. uh, earlier this week, um, and it was taxation, oh. um, because there's been this big... <laughs> One of the most boring we countries had, in the world. Uh, Oxford, I think Oxford University, or whatever the dictionary is yeah. here, they did Riz as their yeah. one. Riz is way So better. they got taxation in Japan. But um, this was basically because there's been this big debate in Japan, even though his government has cut taxes or is about to cut taxes, um, because they're massively going to boost their uh, defence, um, mm -hmm. build up their, their military and, and kind of security apparatus, um, and also they need to fund massive childcare packages. There will everyone knows there will be tax hikes. It's just whether they come next year or the year after. Mm. That's the that's the debate. So, despite these tax cuts at the moment, the you know people in Japan are looking ahead to these looming tax uh, tax increases, yeah. and that's why taxation has been this big political year. topic. Yeah. So he's he's in a bad way at the moment. We also have a video about this out on the TLDR Global yes, Channel. Very so good if you video, want to learn more, go and watch more, it. I yeah. would say this is such a boring point, but it points to an underappreciated fact in all of this like security build-up and the, when we talk about defence spending. And that just is that at the end of the day, these you these do have costs. Mm. And it's you know, the, the turn of phrase is the peace dividend. You lose the peace dividend. Um, and a lot of politicians pretend that investing in defense spending is, is you know, somehow you're going to develop your own domestic defense industry or use it to reindustrialize your base or whatever it is. Um, but the, it just does cost money and resources to, to invest as mm. much as people are talking about in defense. Yeah. Yeah. Who's your loser of the week, Zach? Oh, it's controversial and I feel oh. bad. And again, this is no reflection of personal politics, but it is Zelensky. Oh, okay. It is. So this is for a couple of reasons. Uh, we talked about this in the past, but the Ukrainian administration is currently beset by infighting. There's been a pretty public spat um, between Zeluzhny and Zelensky for a while. Um, funding on both from the EU and the US is, is still at risk, mm -hmm. uh, especially in the US. Um, the EU has fallen short of the munitions targets that it promised um, Ukraine. But the, the most acute issue at the moment is the fact that, and this will be happening on the day of this podcast, um, the well, Hungary is basically threatening to veto Ukraine's EU accession. Um, and a video about that on TODR EU, there, there is indeed. And, um, you know, I think it's probably fair to say that actually 
Ukraine's EU accession was always going to be difficult. Mm -hmm. But the fact that we are at the first real, like this is just the, the first step on the process and already the EU is stuck in a deadlock, just mm -hmm. bodes, it bodes terribly. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's that's why things aren't looking great for Zelensky at the moment. Although there was quite an entertaining moment when during his inauguration ceremony, um, Argentina's president, Javier Millet, sat Orban and Zelensky next to each other and actually put Orban at the very end of the row so he couldn't escape. And Zelensky, immediately after it finished, was stands up and corners him against the column. And you can see him going like this again. Um, but whether or not that is enough to persuade Orban is an open question. Yeah. What a high profile inauguration. I know. It's it quite, I, I did that as well. The yeah. yeah. Who else was there? Oh, I don't have the list. Yeah. I'll be interested. Next time, bring the list. We'll, <laughs> we'll come up with our own seating plan of where we. I know what you mean. Though. I'm surprised. Yeah. I mean, I Zelensky, think, I think, is doing the rounds, but all bad. I mean, what's, what's he all doing all, there? I guess you got to go and like support fellow right wing populists and stuff. I what was Zelensky though? Was Zelensky? I think was there because he was trying to rally like South American support for yeah. Ukraine, but. Um, yeah, I guess so. Yeah. There's, there's an ideological affinity. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. Well, that's how the leaderboard sits right now. We've got three people at the bottom of the leaderboard. Uh, Sonak managed to escape the bottom, but Zelensky and Kishida have both been pushed down to the bottom. It's the most crowded the bottom of the board yeah. has ever been. It would be quite satisfying if Kishida resigned, and then we, we've taken him down to the bottom, and then he's and gone. We, yeah. 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 Interestingly, we've still... Have we ever had anyone on the top row? I don't I think, think we ever I have. I think... I could have Biden put Biden might have been up there yeah, very he was, briefly. He was. Oh, he's tanked since yeah. then. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, interesting skewing towards the bottom of the board right now. Certainly the very bottom. There's a big chunk, kind of middle top, but no one doing supremely well mm. right now. Um, no. As I say, let us know who your choices would be for winner and loser of the week in the comments. Maybe Rory will steal them next episode. <laughs> um, and we'll be back again next Tuesday on the TLDR UK channel for our UK-focused episode of the TLDR podcast. And next Thursday here on TLDR Global for another global news story. If you'd rather listen, then you can always listen using the TLDR podcast feed. Just search for it in your apps and then you get everything all in one place. Either way, we'll be back next Tuesday on UK and next Thursday on Global for more TLDR podcasts. We'll see you then. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>